episode 12 of The Build. Thanks for tuning back in. First of all, uh, happy belated Mother's Day to any mothers uh, listening. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it from everybody, but especially moms. Um, I spent Sunday with my mom. She doesn't listen to the show because I'm pretty sure hockey makes her violently ill. Um, Then again, if she tried to listen last week, there's a good chance she wasn't able to because Anchor just ate my episode. Um, There was a global outage uh, last week where it was essentially for like a day or so only available on Spotify and the Anchor app itself. And if you don't have... If you don't listen on Spotify, I can't really blame you for not having the Anchor app. I don't know what kind of sick, deranged person listens to podcasts on the Anchor app. That's we- that's weirdo stuff. True sicko behavior. Um, Spotify will always have the episodes immediately um, because Spotify owns Anchor. So if anything like this ever happens again, you can rest assured that Spotify probably has it available. Um, then again, I can't really blame you if you don't want to listen on Spotify. That's why I've tried to make it available as many places as possible. Um, other news. I'm finally COVID negative. Um, and I was already on another podcast. Um, tuned in with my pal Laura on the Locked On Canadians episode for Monday. Um, we had a, It's always a ton of fun. But I think the real highlight of that show was the, the Alexander Romanoff conversation. If you listen to the show, you know I have opinions on this guy um, that a lot of people don't share. Um, but it wasn't just me and Laura ragging on him, and I'll say me mostly because I think that's I think a lot of the times the way that constructive or not even constructive criticism, but criticism of a player comes off as, well, you're saying he's not good at this thing, so you must think he's the worst hockey player ever, and it's not where we landed. I think we both landed in a very positive place with him. Um, so check it out. By the time you're listening to this, it'll be end of day Monday or early Tuesday. Or if you listen to it later in the week, it's already kind of in the past. But um, they're worth listening to. Um, if you can stomach looking at my face, it's on YouTube. Um, and if you point out the zit on my neck, I'm blocking you on all social media. Uh, one more note before we kind of get into Canadians chat. Um, I've got a lot on this week's episode. Um, I wanted to start with something I heard this week that was really interesting, and I had never really heard of it, heard of enjoying sports in this way, um, but I found it really interesting and definitely true for the way I enjoy sports. Um, for those who don't know, um, my, my media diet, I, I'm a big defector, uh, guy. I'm a subscriber. I was a big fan of most of their writers when they were at, uh, Deadspin before that place um, just imploded on itself. Their podcast, The Distraction, which you don't need to be a, dis- a subscriber to listen to. It's free. Um, I I think it's a must listen every week for me personally. Drew Majeri and um, Gary Majeri. I never know how to say it. And David Roth are are blogging and podcasting um, heroes of mine. Um, and David Roth pointed out something about watching a team grow up that I thought was very important to the way that I have consumed hockey media over the last, I'll say, 10 years, because I think that's when I was, you know, you go back 10 years, I was I was 16 when, when you know, the, the Bergevin era started, and that's sort of when I really started to, to, you know, live, breathe everything, the Montreal Canadiens. Um, Roth was talking about how the Seattle Mariners 
uh, are slowly building something. And, you know, now they're not quite a world beater of a team. I don't think anybody would call them that. Um, but they're, they're starting to acquire good players and good pieces, not because they need them, but because bad teams were just giving them away. And that's sort of a sign of growth in in baseball, especially just because of the way that, you know, owners don't want to spend money there unless they know they're going to have a chance to win a championship. Um, you know, I feel like I feel like a third of the league in baseball is trying and the others are just showing up for a paycheck. Um, this feels like something that could be transferable to, to the way that, you know, we fans enjoy hockey or in this particular scenario, how we can enjoy the next few seasons of the Montreal Canadiens. Um, Roth spoke about cheering for the, the New York slash Brooklyn Nets, um, those teams that were just, I guess it would, be, it would be the New Jersey Nets, not the New York Nets. Why did I write New York Nets? That doesn't make any sense. Um, anyway, the Nets teams. And he talked about them as if, you know, there's three main phases, almost like the evolution of a Pokemon. They're bad, they're kind of good, and they're competing for a championship. He, he says that the second teams, the teams that fall in the kind of good category, were the ones he remembers most fondly. Um, the ones where you kind of see it turning into something, and maybe they stun a few guys along the way. Um, I, I found that really um, f- touching in a sense that, like, you know, we're not really, like, sports fans are, are oftentimes, like, characterized as people who don't handle setbacks well (laughs) like like every loss is is something that you live in and die with um I think that's certainly true of like the elite competitive teams because I and Roth says this and I entirely believe agree agree with it fans of elite competitive teams are buttheads they're just dorks you know in hockey they're zaprudering every hit to see if they can make some kind of character assassination on a human being they've never met and getting into to their their DMs on Twitter to yell at them about it. Um, every missed penalty is a direct insult to you and your family and might actually also be an international incident of somehow. You know all these kinds of people watching the playoffs this year. You can probably pick out a few that you see on Twitter. Sometimes you probably are this kind of person when your team is doing well. It happens to all of us. But when Roth talks about like those bad teams that are sort of kind of good and they're getting better... He's he mentions and I'll I'll paraphrase him a little bit here that period of a team awakening from a coma to start doing regular sports team things for the first time in twenty years, that's the experience that we should treasure. Um, and I think that's why I'm so interested in the goal of this show the the feeling of building something of something coming up right in front of our eyes where like we're gonna get years down the line and the picks that we acquire for players we traded will start playing hockey for this team and we'll go oh yeah that's right we got him for him we've been there for so long you'll finally start to see the process come together um that's gonna be the bulk of this show honestly unless they you know get good really really fast and they go on a magical run and this ends after like episode i don't know a hundred i doubt it will I don't I don't have high hopes for this being a particularly quick um, transformation of the Montreal Canadiens. But I think it's probably fair to say that they've bottomed out, right? I don't think that they will be last place in the league again next season. 
Um, the next few seasons are going to have bits of that getting better feeling. We're going to see guys play for this team who haven't played here before. Um, that's not to say this upcoming season we're going to see them make a run at a playoff spot. I don't think that's, one, the reality, or two, the plan. The season after that, so 23-24, we'll have a bit more of that feeling. We'll start to see, okay, maybe we're cl- maybe we're a bubble playoff team. And then before you know it, we're going to be buttheads again, rooting for this team in the first round of the playoffs and watching you know, some of the most violent collisions we've ever seen and wondering why. You know, <laughs> why these teams get to the Stanley Cup final just entirely beaten up. Um, but that's all getting well too far ahead of ourselves. Myself, I should say. You haven't done anything. Um, what I want to talk about first is Kent Hughes on this podcast. Can you believe it? No. He he spoke to uh, Mitch Melnick and co. of TSN 690 last week. He did a radio hit on Thursday. Um First of all, this this whole experience starts with me falling for a radio tweet. And for those not familiar with the concept of being radioed, it's when someone like an insider or or a front office person goes on, you know, any kind of audio medium or maybe even on TV and they say something and then someone tweets a small snippet of that audio without context that's getting radioed. It happens to insiders all the time. I think Bob McKenzie has like literally talked about being radioed. I think he seems to be the one that like coined the term. Um, This time it happened to Kent Hughes. who spoke with TSN 690 on Thursday. There was a couple of tweets coming out from people who I should have known better reading the tweets. And I'm not going to put anybody on blast because it's really my fault for falling for it. Um, a tweet went out that said Kent Hughes says that he wants the Canadians to be bigger up front. And that was all the tweet said. And then that tweet, well, I should say that's all that tweet said about Kent Hughes's words. And then the tweet went on to then draw a huge line between that and, well, then they're going to take Slavkovsky in the first round, despite that most draft analysts saying that, like, that would be a bad idea if the Canadians are picking one, two, or three. That, I, I went, I did the thing that I should have done which was before tweeting, I should have gone and read and listened to the interview and figured out what exactly it was he said. Because it turns out that we have to get bigger up front wasn't A, exactly what he said, and B, was only a very small portion of what he talked about. But that's what this person wanted to tweet out. So now I'm going to go through what I should have done, and you're going to get my notes from listening to the interview, essentially. Um, So here's what happened. First question... Uh, Melnick asks if there are any curveballs to being the GM, anything unexpected. Um, Hughes mentioned there were no curveballs, but mentioned that remembering how important the Canadians are in Montreal um, was driven home um, in part by some unfortunate incidents like Lafleur's uh, passing. Um, but it was it was also you know he I think him just getting there was important to seeing how important this team is culturally to that city. Um, but then this is a direct quote from him. The hockey piece is as expected. Um, so he's a very confident guy, despite never having done this job before. Um, I, I've i certainly, uh, you know, you feel like you're in good hands with him. You feel like the Canadians are in good hands with him. Um, he was asked about having a captain next season. Um, the timeline, they need to know how the draft and free agency play out to know what kind of leadership they will need next season. Not just a le- Not just a captain, but a leadership group. Um, 
Players will have input and have had input through their exit meetings to see how they see leadership in the locker room, but it doesn't seem like they're doing a locker room vote. It seems like management is going to name a captain at some point. Um, and I thought that was interesting because, you know, he says what kind of leadership they'll have next season, not just a captain, but a group. Well, you, you feel, and we'll get to this later, but you feel like Jeff Petrie's probably on the way out. There's a chance Carey Price doesn't play next season. Um, there's a chance he does. There's a chance he never plays again. These are all, I think, honestly, every everything is is equal at this point from my perspective because we just don't know anything. Um, you know, it would be a lot to just throw the C on Nick Suzuki's sweater and say, all right, Nick, go get him. And then your alternate captains are, you know, Joel Edmondson and, and Paul Byron or, or something to that effect. I think... Outside of players that wear a letter, you need to bring in some guys who can help move this team forward as far as, you know, helping their younger players get into positions where they can succeed. And I think that's that leads nicely into the next question. He was asked about free agency. Will they be active? Um, he's I'll paraphrase what he says. The summer, including the draft, that will involve a number of different things, trades, acquiring players. They have to go hand in hand with their cap situation and the possibility of moving a contract or two out. Um, so, again, that I talked about this with Laura on, on Locked on Canadians on Monday. Um, but this ties in with Jeff Petrie in the sense that, you know, Ken Hughes says he wants to be, you know, they're not going to be active in free agency unless they can move a contract or two out, you know, that's a way that they can, they can know they'll have cap space. Petrie, they, if they do move him, they want to bring in somebody to help fill that veteran role. So if Petrie's gone, they'll be active in free agency. If they're active in free agency, they're looking for a veteran piece. If they're looking for a veteran piece, it means Petrie's gone. So it's sort of, it's circular. Um, I will say Pierre Lebrun has been reporting since Hughes was hired essentially that the Canadians were going to be active in free agency. And it seems like Hughes isn't totally on board with that idea. Like that doesn't seem like something he feels all that comfortable doing. It's possible that when he took over, that was the goal. And then he watched this team play hockey for the rest of the season and went, Oh no, this team isn't close. Um, so we'll just have to wait and see how that plays out. He might be lying. He might just be bluffing, you know, and saying that they're not going to be active in free agency free agency because he wants to hide his cards um jeff petrie they haven't spoken with petrie since he returned home that will come in the coming weeks post trade deadline teams are not focused on trades that could happen over the summer coming out of the world championships they will refocus on those conversations both with petrie and acquiring teams that was from uh hughes when asked about jeff petrie so that seems still very much up in the air um so in, after this, he heads on to Carey Price. I'm, I, I think I wrote this basically verbatim. So, you know, go listen to it yourself once this is over if you, if you want to get the direct quote. But I'm nearly certain this is, this is correct. Um, situation with Price is complicated. No simple answer. Timeline for Price and what it means for him to be able to return to, to his form or even make sure there aren't any lifelong restrictions with his knee are still out there. If there's a procedure that could get him back to being a goalie in the NHL, he wants to explore that. If not, we're going to get to that point where he's not medically capable of playing. We'd like to have that answer going into free agency, but we don't know, and there's not a lot we can do about it. That's a 
that's a pretty big bombshell from from Kent Hughes that I think a lot of folks aren't really talking about all that much. He basically said Carey Price is looking into medical procedures that will allow him to come back and play, one, and two, make sure there are not lifelong restrictions on his knee if he does come back to play. If that procedure exists, he's he wants to do it. He wants to at least explore it. If not, we're at a point where he's essentially a Shea Weber, where he's medically not capable of playing anymore. And at that point, it looks like he's retiring. Um, again, I don't know. Like he says, we'd like to have that answer going into free agency, but we don't know, and there's not a lot we can do about it. I think Eric Engels in his mailbag said that it's likely they'll know by the time free agency starts, or at least maybe even the draft, which is the first week of July. Um, so we'll see. But it's certainly not, you know, I think a lot of people jumped to, nah, he'll be back. It's not a problem. We just saw him play. Like, yeah, he played a few games, and he did have to take a break to go see a doctor in the middle of it. Um, so we'll see. All options seem to be on the table for him, which is scary. Um, looking forward at the future of this team. Um, they asked him how hard his job will be, um, knowing that he'll have around $20 million in long-term injured reserve space if Carey Price isn't playing. Um, he says it's hard, but... Um, they don't know how much they're going to have going into free agency. That's the hard part. Weber is penciled and is not playing, so you can plan to spend that money. It's the players who go off and on that make it challenging. Read Carey Price. If Carey Price decides that he wants to play, but his surgery pushes him back and he's not able to play at the beginning of the season, but he can play later on, you can't spend that money in the summer because you're going to have to clear that money to bring Carey Price back onto the roster. So... It's it it's a it's a tough situation they're in. That's why I think Kent Hughes is focusing so much on clearing out other cap space. It's why I think Jeff Petrie is a big um, feature of that plan. Um, they asked him why they sh- why they should be free uh, bleh, why they should be active in free agency. And this is a uh, another paraphrase of him. I think free agency as a process is a group of players who enter a market and a group of teams who uh, that negotiate services. Um, and then he goes on to you know talk say basically that Montreal doesn't anticipate being in on that five star market. The Latangs, the Malkins, um, he will make moves that fit the Canadians' short term and long term goals. They would need to move players to be active. Notes moving Jeff Petrie as a sign that the Canadians would feel. They would need to add in order to help with the development of their young players. He uses the word experience a lot. So if Jeff Petrie's on the way out, you can feel pretty confident that they're going to find a veteran defenseman to come in and play the minutes that Jeff Petrie would have played. Um, Who knows who that is? Um, If it's a free agent, you're kind of getting a much older player, I would imagine, who's like in the end of his career just to come in and, and be that mentor for the new guys coming in from Montreal, but we'll see. Um, he was asked if anything has shifted the task at hand for the Canadians. Uh, and the, I found it, it was interesting that he immediately went to goaltending. He said, it's hard to win without consistently good goaltending. He's glad he'll have Allen back next year, but it sounds, and this is me adding on to this or just analyzing what I heard. It sounds like he's not all that convinced his goaltending without price is set. Um, I think, I think he, he thinks 
the same way a lot of us do and that Caden Primo should not play in the NHL next year. Um, so with that said, you need to get another goaltender if Carey Price isn't going. So you'll have Jake Allen as a 1B. You need a 1A. Um, they're not cheap, so you're going to have to figure out a way to acquire one. Um, he then added that the team responded well when they knew they weren't going to the playoffs. Players embraced the idea of getting better, not just winning or losing games. So it seems like they had buy-in from from the head coach and from just the process in general that they need to um, just focus on improving as players, less le- more so than, than results overall. Um, they asked about the Canadians organizational depth chart. It was kind of, I mean, it was a kind of a roughly worded question. They were like, yeah, just like, what's the depth chart look like for the Canadians? Um, and he notes that they have a good group of young defensemen coming, good existing defensemen. He knows they need to improve because they finished 32nd. And those aren't my words. Like he said, like we were in last place last year. Like we know we have to get better, but they are excited about guys coming up. They, and this is where that radio comes from. He said, quote, they need to get they need to get, quote, faster, bigger and need to generate more offense up front. Um, they need to generate more offensive opportunities, lots to do, but opportunities for players currently there to step up in the meantime. It was embarrassing listening to that just because like those tweets were so far away from what was actually said the part that should have got more play was him mentioning the canadians generating more scoring chances that seems very analytically inclined um i was that part made me very happy was that he's talking about scoring chances which is i i don't know how long we've gone without uh the general manager of the canadians talking about scoring chances um they asked about caulfield not going to the worlds he says there's no issue with it um caulfield they had a short summer last year He's dealt with a lot this year. Um, he joked, he's, you know, he said, you know, if, if Caulfield was just going on a vacation, I would say, you know, that's rough, but he's, he's going to be at home working. And finally, um, St. Louis extension, uh, he says, quote, coming soon, I hope. So we should be getting that. It's the, wor- it's, it's the worst kept secret that St. Louis is coming back, um, which is good. I think he deserves to come back. My fears about that extension have always been... Uh, to avoid a Dom Ducharme part two. If it's like two years, cool. It it can't three years. Okay. We're getting close. If it's anything over three, we're in trouble just because you need, I think you need to have that flexibility to decide when something's not going well. And it was a huge talking point that the Canadians were already paying two coaches. They're paying Dom Ducharme for the next two. So you have to, you know, you have to keep yourself open to the idea that you might be canning him at some point. Um, I hope not. I hope it works out. But you have to plan as if it doesn't. All right. That's all I had from that um, that radio hit. It was not as inflammatory as some tweets would uh, believe. So, um, some early playoff takeaways. Uh, I've been watching just about every game of the playoffs I can. It's been... Weird seeing how many uh, power plays there have been, or just special teams in general, because I guess you can call four on four a special team since it's not five on five. Um, power plays used to be so like few and far between over the last few years of the, the the playoffs because the sport was so poorly officiated once it got into the first round of the playoffs. Um, penalties are 
it seems like now, in most cases, penalties are being called at about the same rate as the regular season, but it seems much higher because we're expecting typical playoff officiating. Um, so, you know, our, our, our perspective is skewed in that sense. Um, but watching, you know, these teams try to figure out their special teams, you know, a, a good power play can win you games in, in this year's Stanley Cup playoffs, it seems like. Um, and it's just, it goes as another reminder to me that how bad the Canadian special teams were and how it seems like for years there wasn't much of a plan to ever improve them outside of we're just going to keep hammering home the same thing and it's going to work. When Shea Weber was on the Canadians, the plan was we're going to pass it to Shea and he's going to hit it as hard as he can and sometimes he'll hit the net and sometimes when it does hit the net, then it'll go in. So there wasn't much of an actual plan when it came to, you know, developing a, a, a power play. What's funny now is I think the Canadians have more than one scoring threat out there. Caulfield is obviously a threat to score from, from Shea Weber's office. But Suzuki is also a threat to score from the other side of the ice. Um, he does that thing where he'll, he'll dip back into the neutral zone, basically leave the zone while he doesn't have the puck, and come back in as the puck is getting to you know the, the other point man or sometimes Caulfield on the other flank. And he'll use that forward momentum to back up the defenseman, sometimes get a shot off and score, but at least he's backing up the defenseman. Like there's, I see the, I see some things on that power play that I really like, but then that's two guys. There's three other dudes out there. Um, I think that, you know, I think that there's, there's a legit case for that to be a lethal power play if you put the right pieces around them and you give them better direction. I was I was kind of stunned by an, an early power play for the Capitals um, in their series against the Panthers because Ovechkin lives in the same spot that Caulfield lives in, right? It's that same, they're both right-handed shots, it's that same face-off circle. But watching them, yes, Caulfield lives in that spot, but he doesn't stay there. He's, like, I don't know if this is him being, you know, seeing the play develop really well but if he's looking around and there's been some passes that don't click and they're not able to get him the puck he'll move he I watched him on a play where they scored a goal he left that spot and went to the point and John Carlson came down and then that changes the dynamic a bit because then the Florida Panthers forwards defending the power play they need to decide are we still double are we putting that that guy who's in Ovechkin's spot now John Carlson is he double coverage or are we putting two guys up at the point to guard Ovechkin? Because now you've opened up slots, you know, you've opened up passing lanes through the slot. Um, it's really interesting because, you know, so let's say in this situation that like Ovechkin is playing the Caulfield role and Suzuki is playing the John Carlson role where they're just moving parts. The difference being is that the Capitals... When those two guys are taken away, they still have TJ Oshie and Nicholas Backstrom and Evgeny Kuznetsov. The Canadians don't have that. They have Chris Weidman. At times towards the end of the season, Matthew Perot or, uh, you know, Mike Hoffman was out there as, as part of that five forward power play unit. So I... You know, there's a lot of things that need to improve for the Canadians power play to improve, but I found that watching the Capitals run that power play that way um it gave me hope that maybe the canadians can fix some things just by mari st louis would love this just by reads like recognizing the play that's in front of you 
and and making a play that makes more sense as opposed to, you know, I am here to do this one thing. That it needs to be more dynamic. The penalty kill, on the other hand, was just brutal. And I think some of that's going to be solved with more consistent goaltending. Not all of it, but some of it. And I do think they need better parts on that penalty kill and they need better direction. I'm going to, I'm not, this, this is not a dig at Alexander Romanov. Okay. I want to say that right away. Alexander Romanov can be a very, very good penalty killing defenseman. I believe. I also think that on a competitive team, he can't be the top penalty killing defenseman. And that's what he was down the stretch for the Canadians. And like I talked about on locked on Canadians, you know, I, I don't think that that they put him in that role to be that guy just to see what they have. He's a restricted free agent this summer. They know that they can lean on him because he does have some experience and they want to see what they have because he's only 22. So, you know, I think putting players in positions to succeed will help further down the line. I think that's where I agree with Kent Hughes in that you can't just get rid of Jeff Petrie and not bring back a veteran defenseman because then you've got a Jordan Harris or a, a Justin Barron, you know, manning the the first or second penalty killing unit and playing a ton and maybe not being put in a, a situation where they can succeed. Um, so I think a special teams revamp is in order. I don't think I'm breaking any new ground saying that. But with both Richardson and Burroughs coming back, that it'll need to be a change of philosophy behind the bench because those guys have been there forever. I'm sure that they have their own ideas about how things will work. Um, St. Louis has already had some influence on the power play with them going with five forwards. Once he showed up, perhaps he has some more ideas. Um, other than that, the only other playoff takeaway I have. So, you know, this early, uh, is I miss the Stanley cup playoff logos inside the blue lines. It's such a small thing, but it made those, it makes these games feel different watching at home. Like, you know, you're watching a playoff game at home. Um, I doubt they bring them back since they've used that space for like, like the 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 sublimated ads on the broadcast, which is super lame, but oh well. All right, I think I've got one more thing to talk about today, and it's the draft lottery guide because it is literally happening as I record this in 24 hours. So if you listen to this before Tuesday night, this will still be applicable. Otherwise, you'll already know what happened, and I'm I'm either right or wrong. Um. If you've ever watched the draft lottery, you probably know how the TV broadcast plays out. The teams, sometimes they, they usually sent them all there, but the last few have been remotely. They'll be dialed in remotely this year. The firm doing the lottery will have already completed it by the time we turn it on. Um, it's just it's not just one ping pong ball like the bubble lottery was. Each team has a certain number of combinations. Um, and, you know, they, they'll... So, you know, let's say they pull five balls to figure out the first overall pick. The Canadians own 18.5% of the possible combinations that could be made from those numbers. So that's how that works. Bill Daly, once they run that, Bill Daly will get a stack of cards with the team picking 16th on top, and he'll reveal them all um, through to the third overall pick. Most likely the third overall pick, because that... that that pick could be someone moving down from the top two or moving up from uh, spots 11 through 12 or 11 through 16. Um, in the past, when a team wins a lottery, 
they reveal that card and the card is gold. Um, I'm not sure if that's how they'll do it this year. But that's important to realize because this year, the way that the lottery works is you can move up a maximum of 10 spots. So mathematically, there are five teams that are involved in this lottery that cannot win the first overall pick. The Golden Knights, the Canucks, the Winnipeg Jets, the New York Islanders, and the Blue Jackets. Those five teams are not allowed to win the first overall pick. They'll, like if Columbus, they're, tw- they're 12th. If they win the first overall pick, they really win the second overall pick. Because the maximum you're allowed to move up is 10 spots. So, the best team eligible to win the first overall pick is the San Jose Sharks. They are in 11th place. They have a 3% chance of winning that pick. If any of those teams, 16 through 12, the Knights, the Canucks, the Jets, the Islanders, or the Blue Jackets, win the first overall pick, they don't. They'll move up 10 spaces, and the Canadians would win the first overall pick by default because no other team won it. So if they're running the lottery and Bill Daly's flipping cards over and, you know, it goes 16, Vegas, not gold, 15, Vancouver, not gold, 14, Winnipeg, gold card, Montreal's chances to win the first overall pick have gone up because it means that only the teams, uh, that it means that one of the teams that won a lottery can't actually win that pick. This quirk it's mathematically measurable. Like you can actually see it. The Canadians odds of winning the lottery on their own. So, you know, Bill Daly flips over the card. The Canadians have won the first overall pick there. They won the lottery for the first overall pick. Those odds are 18 and a half percent. Their chances of actually picking first are 25 and a half percent. And the reason being is Those teams that I listed that are outside the top 10, those five teams, there's a 7% chance that they win that first lottery. If they win that first lottery, they don't pick first, and it goes to the Canadians. So that you take their 7% chance and you add it to the Canadians 18.5 to give them a quarter of a chance, a 1 in 4 chance of winning that lottery. The Canadians mathematically can pick anywhere in the top three. The pick with the highest probability for Montreal, unfortunately, is third. Um, they they have a 55.7% chance of, of losing both of those lotteries and falling to third, which is scary to think about because it seems like that would result in a really bad season not ending in a way that gives the Canadians anything of value. But they're still going to get a good player with the third overall pick. They're going to. And, you know, unlike years in the past where they've picked early, there's no incentive for the Canadians to bring that player up immediately. And with the way that this organization, since Hugo have taken over, have talked about development, if they get a player who isn't ready for the NHL, they won't play in the NHL. They'll send him back to junior. The Canadians will will love to just let that guy develop for a little bit longer and then, you know, bring him into Laval at some point. Have development goals for them even when they're on their other teams, even when they're still on their junior team. So, try not to sweat about this too much. There's nothing you can do about it. It stinks. But 
that's the reality that we're living in. The Canadians are going to get a good player. The lowest they'll pick, I should, yeah, the lowest they'll pick is third. And it's not even the last time they'll pick in the first round unless they move that pick that they got from Calgary, who is currently losing their series to Dallas in something that I said Canadians fans should be rooting for because it makes that pick better. So we'll see how it plays out. Um, I really enjoy the draft lottery broadcast on TV because I'm a big dork, but they they the drama like it plays out well. They do they do the NHL messes up a lot of things. The draft lottery still has like some buzz to it. It's a good it's a good thing for the sport. Now, am I mad that the Oilers ruined it when the Canadians could actually benefit from having higher odds to pick first? Yeah, I am. But nothing you can do about it. All right, that's all I got. Shorter episode. I had a lot to cover, and we just kind of ran through it. Um, that's all I have. Thanks for listening. Um, follow me on Twitter at Maybe It's Ian, uh, at Rabbit Habs for the blog. Um, check out Locked on Canadians if you don't already. Not only epi- the episodes that I'm on, but all of them, because they are very, very good. Um, check the description for links to things I mentioned during the show. This time, those links will include some places you can um, you can go to to help fund women's reproductive help and bodily autonomy in the United States. I stole all of them from John Oliver, and I've set up reoccurring donations of my own. Um, the three of them are the Bridget Alliance. They fund travel for people who must go um, far away for abortion, abortions and other reproductive care. Um, the Lilith Fund it funds for people who cannot afford abortions on their own. Um, and the Yellowhammer Fund, and from their mission statement, Quote, we commit ourselves to community education and empowerment, policy advocacy, and the development of systems of mutual aid to ensure that our friends, families, and neighbors never go without the things that they need. Um, because ultimately, that's what all of this comes down to. Um, people will say it's about other shit. It's not. It's about things that people need. Um, so please consider contributing what you can um, to helping fight off this legitimate nightmare um, for, for some people. It's It's scary. Um, I hope you're doing well. Uh, Laura Jane Grace of, of uh, oh, why can't I think of her band name at the, at the moment? Uh, against me. Wow, that was bad. Laura Jane Grace would say, welcome to the future and always ice cold nightmare. And I feel like that's sort of what we're living in now. But um, we're going to do our best to fight back. Uh, hard pivot. <laughs> the music you heard at the beginning of the show and are hearing now is Inside by Fred Mugg. Check the description for a link to his Bandcamp page and listen to the rest of his stuff, including a new six-track album called Expedition. All right, guys, take take care. Uh, wear good luck things. Win the lottery. Bye, guys.